Well, it was at an elementary school classroom where they were having a time of show and tell when uh, one of the little girls, one of the students, young, it was a young class, uh, brought a puppy for the class to enjoy. And they were having fun, and uh, the classmates, after a little while, uh, such a young class, such a young grade, began to wonder about the gender of the puppy. And, uh, but none of them knew how to ascertain this. So as they were wondering, one of the little girls, one of the young girls in the class raised her hand and said, I know how we can tell. Let's vote. Okay. Now, I mean, we may chuckle at that, um, but that little girl showed the most common view of truth in American culture. Majority rules. 51% truth. When absolutes are taken out of the picture, people are free to create their own version of truth. And I wonder what you think about that. Uh, This is not new. Uh, In 1858, Abraham Lincoln and Stephen Douglas had seven debates in the state of Illinois for Douglas's seat in the Senate. And back then, that's when they did debates. Uh, One candidate would stand and speak for an hour nonstop, talk about all they believed about the particular issue. And then after they were done speaking for an entire hour, the other candidate would stand up and rebut for the next hour and an hour and a half. And then what followed, the first would then get up and give the closing remarks for a full hour. This is what the Lincoln-Douglas debates were about back in 58. And the issue was slavery. Uh, Douglas's point of view was what historians call the popular sovereignty position. Let the territories decide uh, that are applying for statehood, let them decide Uh, whether or not they wanted to have slavery. Put it up for a vote, 51%. Let the states decide. Abraham Lincoln said, no, we should not put it up for a vote because some things shouldn't be voted on. Fundamental to Lincoln's argument was his conviction about the nature of truth. And to Lincoln, a 51% majority vote did not make something true. 51% does not make something immoral, moral. Well, this morning I want us to think clearly. I want us to think critically. I want us to think Christianly about the nature and origin of truth. I want to encourage us to just slow down in our fast-paced world and see and hear and perceive and become aware of what, what's our culture's perspective about the origin and nature of truth? But what's, what's God's perspective? What does He have to say? And this is so significant. It's important. And the significance of this subject is in a story that It's told by Professor Francis Beckwith, who teaches philosophy and ethics. 
Once Francis Beckwith was uh, teaching a particular ethics class, and he was talking about the importance of truth and objective morals. But in class, he had a, a rather obnoxious, skeptical student who questioned everything he had to say. This student frequently challenged uh, his conclusions in, in kind of a, a, a somewhat arrogant posture. And one time the student just said with an air of smugness, Dr. Beckwith, what makes truth so important anyway? What makes it so important anyway? And Francis Beckwith paused for a moment and said, well, would you like the true answer? Or the false answer. And his question silenced the student because the student at that moment realized a profound point. Their very question assumed such thing as truth. Truth is necessary. It's a necessary bedrock for life can't live without truth. When you go in for your doctor's tests and those tests come back, you want truth, right? You want truth. Your bank believes in absolute truth, okay? So let's consider the origin and nature of truth this morning. Well, let's define truth. Let's go to the dictionary I don't know if we'll be clear or more confused because when you go to Webster's Dictionary, you see there's two different definitions. First definition defines truth as sincerity in action, character, and utterance. In other words, uh, truth is contingent on one's own level of authenticity or genuineness. In other words, it's grounded in the subject. It's subjective understanding of truth. The other definition, the state of being the case, defines truth as the way things are, irrespective of my thoughts or my feelings. In other words, it's objective. It is, it is what it is, the way things are. Where do you land on these understandings? From the puppy in the show-and-tell class to the Lincoln-Douglas debates to Webster's Dictionary, uh, there are competing, and I will say irreconcilable, understandings about what truth is and where truth can be found. In his book, The Christian Mind, Harry Blumiers writes, there's a clash between the Christian mind and the secular mind. Secularism asserts the opinionated self as the only judge of truth. Christianity insists on God and His Word as the final criteria of truth. This clash shows up in our Scripture reading this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the Old Testament book of Psalms. Psalms chapter 12 and if you just open your Bible to about the middle, you will most likely land in the book of Psalms, and Psalm 12 is where we'll be today. You'll find that on page 452 
of your church Bibles. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, I would love it if you would just take a copy and put your name in it and take it home. We want everyone here to have their own copy of the Bible. And in Psalm 12, we see these two perspectives clashing. These two places where people seek truth. And where you look will determine how you think. And how you think will determine what you say. And what you say will lead to the course of your life. Let's listen to what David writes in Psalm 12. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of man. This is God's word. So as we look at these verses, we see these two places where people seek truth. Uh, they seek truth either subjectively from down under, that's verses 1 through 4, or objectively from on high. That's verses 5 through 8. So the psalm presents itself rather simply. Verses 1 through 4, subjective, truth from down under, or objective truth, verses 5 through 8, from on high. Let's walk through this psalm verse by verse, beginning in verse 1. Save, O Lord. Some of your translations use the word help. Help, O Lord. For the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. So the backstory there is that David feels alone. Either he's talking about a season in his life or in the life of God's people, where he's feeling outnumbered, where he's feeling in the minority, where he's feeling the squeeze of a culture attracted to truth from down below, from the opinionated self. David is living in a culture concerned about uh, what most people believe and what the majority do. Instead of asking questions like what's best for us or what's the ideal or what's the wise thing to do, the, he, David's world is wondering about the prevailing average. And one author calls this the tyranny of the average. Truth from down under, subjective. And there's a dark side to this tyranny. Verses 2 and 3. Untruths, insincere flattering, arrogant boasting. Those are, those are fruits from a root. And the root is in verse 4. Verse 4, we see the root of subjective truth. The epicenter of subjective truth. 
With our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Now I noticed that when I read this, nobody in here went, <gasps> When I first read this for the first time, I didn't go, <gasps> Why would you go, <gasps> Here's why. You're a 21st century American living in the Midwest. But to the ancient world of the Hebrew mind, to, to, to have read or heard these words as stated would be shocking. And here's why. In the Hebrew mind of the ancient world, the statement in verse 4 should naturally read, with the Lord we will prevail. The Lord is with us. The Lord is master over us. But no, no, it's been perverted and corrupted to our lips are with us. Our truth is with us. We are the source. We get to choose what truth is. One author put it this way, man's love of self-sovereign rule is such that when he loves something that is not the truth, he pretends to himself that what he loves is the truth, and because he hates to be proved wrong, he will not allow himself to be convinced that he's deceiving himself. And that's what's going on here. Verse 4 describes those with no interest in conforming their thinking to reality. Rather, they want, to conform, they want reality to be conformed to their thinking. The, the secular mind wants editorial privileges to truth as if it came from the human mind and therefore can and should be updated. Who is master over us? That's a rhetorical question, meaning no one. No one's master over us. We want to be our own God. We want to make up truth for ourselves. We want this. And we've seen this really uh, with, I would say, embarrassing and uh, just horrifying uh, ways in our culture. I'm thinking of um, the series of interviews that took place in the late 70s uh, between uh, reporter interviewer David Frost and uh, Richard Nixon. And uh, over a series of hours, uh, that was kind of the closest that the American public came to a trial uh, for Nixon's involvement in Watergate. And a very interesting portion of their conversation took place. And David Frost asked Richard Nixon this question. Would you say that there are certain situations where the president can decide that it's in the best interests of the nation and do something illegal? To which Nixon replied, well, when the president does it, that means it's not illegal. That's truth from down under. And, and I, I'll just say that virus is still rampant today in our culture. Um, so, on the website of the LGBT Foundation, there's a Q&A section. And first question in the Q&A section, am I LGBT? First answer out of the gate. In the end, this is a question only you can answer. 
And the Christian mind would say, really? Are you saying that a 13-year-old is mature enough to make that kind of conclusion? How do you know you're not wrong? How do you know you're not wrong? That virus is still around. Someone says, well, I'm not feeling happy with my spouse, and I know God wants me happy. I think I'll find a new spouse. In the end, this is a question only you can answer. Really? Really? How do you know you're not wrong? Now, lest anybody think I'm getting a little too preachy for us here, look at verse 5. This point of view hurts people. The weak and the poor are being exploited. See? You see, absent the possibility of truth, power rules the day. You take objective truth off the table, then what you just have then is power, strength, force of will. And a great example of this is uh, concerns a professor at uh, the U of I, uh, Robert Wingert, uh, emeritus philosophy professor at uh, the University of Illinois. When he taught introductory ethics classes, he would begin class by asking how many of the students in the class believed that truth was relative. And he'd take a hand count, and invariably, he would say, uh, two-thirds to three-fourths of the students would raise their hands saying, truth is relative, truth is relative. And say, all right. And then he'd go on, and he would discuss the syllabus and the test dates and the papers and the course content. And after all of those kind of class business details were covered, he would then inform the class uh, that they would be graded according to their height. And of course, at that point, you know, a smart, alecky, tall kid would loudly agree with the system, to which he would then say, oh, you misunderstood me. Short students get A's, tall students flunk. Oh, come on, that's not fair, that's not fair. To which he would say, hey, I'm the professor. I can grade any way I want. No, no, you ought to grade according to how well we master the material. And you should look at our papers and our exams to see how we've mastered the content of the course. And then grade us on that. And then... Professor Wanger would go in for the kill. He would say, well, uh, wait a minute. By using words like should and ought, you betray your alleged conviction that truth is relative. Because were you a true relativist, you would agree that there is no external standard to which my grading should conform. If my truth and my ethic lead me to an alternate grading system that you deem inappropriate, say la vie. I will grade how I wish. I am in charge. And then after exhorting his students about lazy thinking concerning relativism and the pursuit of truth, he informed the class that he would in fact grade them on their academic performance. But his point was clear. Once truth is whatever we subjectively say it is, asserting power over others is what happens next. 
And some of you identify with verse 5. Because some of you come into this room week after week after week and you have been damaged by others' subjective version of truth. They've power rolled over you. They've said to you, you're not worth much. Or, you're incompetent or you can't do anything right. And They say it over and over and over again, damaging you, damaging you, damaging you. And you know what's worse than that? You hurt yourself. You say to yourself, I'm not worth much, or I'm an idiot, or I can't do anything right, or I'm so stupid, or I'm incompetent, I'm unlovable, I can never be forgiven, you know. And here's really where it... um, becomes relevant for all of us in this room. If I'm going to lose you, I'm going to lose you right here. Okay? Justification, sanctification. Justification, sanctification. When we let our sanctification determine our justification... Our thinking is truth from down under. Justification. Justification has to do with forgiveness. Has to do with your relationship with God. Justification, when you come to Christ, you go from 0% forgiven, 0% justified, to 100% justified. So I'm never going to be any more forgiven than the day when I first became a Christian. Because I go from 0% forgiven to 100% forgiven, okay? It's like being married. I'm never going to be any more married than May 5th, 1984. See? You go from 0% married to 100% married, okay? 0% forgiven, 100% forgiven. 0% justified, 100% justified. Justification. Does that make sense? Say yes. Okay, sanctification. Sanctification is the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. That's sanctification. It's the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. Now, I don't know how that process works in your life, but in my life, it kind of looks like the stock market. Okay? All right? Yeah. Sanctification. Sometimes I have a a two-amp blowout day, right? Okay? You get it? So here's the... But if I let this determine this... What I've done is I've just turned Christianity into works. Because, oh, well, I had a quiet time today, and I prayed, and I've given my offering, and I've even made it to church, and, and, and I served in the nursery, and, man, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. You know, and so, see, but then one day, you know, you just have an argument with your spouse on the way. We, Sarah and I don't do that. We drive separately. We haven't had our... <laughs> Never had an argument since I've been here at Windsor Road Christian Church for 27 years. Never had an argument on the way to church. Take two cars. Works for us. Anyway, so, but you see, you see, but if you let your sanctification 
determine your justification. You've just turned this whole, you've, you've, you've eliminated grace and you've just made it about your works. And, and, and I'm only as saved as I feel about my saving. See? See? And some of you, you know, and some of us, and it, listen, <laughs> if, if I let the how I feel about I preach, if I let about, if I allow how I feel about my sermon delivery each Sunday determine my Christianity, I'm going to need twice as much medicine as I'm on now. Okay? So, so that's a down-under approach that just doesn't work. It's not gospel truth. Gospel truth is the better way. Gospel truth is truth from on high. That's why verse 5 says, I will now arise. So this is the first time in the book of Psalms that we read the Lord himself speaking. I will stand. The Lord says, I will arise because I have something to say. And what I say is truth. Our God, the source of truth, stands to act in truth because that's the nature of Christianity. Christianity is a faith of acts and facts. Someone called Christianity the most materialistic religion in history. And by materialistic, he meant that Christianity is about Material things that have happened, like a baby born, and a body crucified, and an empty tomb. Christianity is about baptistry waters, and bread, and wine. It's about the real world. It's about the way things are. Christianity is about bodies, and earth, and creation, and the physical stuff of life, and, and what God has done to make this happen, which is why the Psalms later say, Oh, Lord, how wonderful are your works, not how interesting are your theories. But your works, what you've done, who is like you, Lord? Verse 6 says that the words of the Lord are pure words. So God's words are free of the dross of lies and flattery and double talk from a double-hearted person. God's words are purified seven times, verse 6. Meaning they're 100 proof pure. Meaning you can count on them. And here in verses 5 and 7, we see this, this beautiful image of, of really what God's words are. God says, I will place him in the safety for which he longs. You will keep them. You will guard us. Don't you get it? Truth is not something that you can create. It's a place where you can reside. It's not a curriculum made by man. It's a shelter provided by God. And we long for that. We long, we long for safety. And why? Verse 8. On every side the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of man. So the psalm doesn't end on a happy note, does it? 
It ends recognizing the way things are. The world that is. This, the psalm begins with a furious, stormy, oceanic world. A world which seeks to fabricate truth its own way. Verses 1 through 4. And then in 5 through 8, it reveals the lighthouse of God's truth. Though lashed about by high seas and fierce winds, it's an immovable lighthouse. It's not going anywhere. It's a shelter of safety. It's, it's one of those, I've been looking for a place like this. And what's more, God arises to invite us in this lighthouse. You know, and he's, he's saying, you, you better get in here because the storm's not over. <laughs> On every side, the wicked prowl. And once you come into the lighthouse, you realize that truth is not a syllabus. Truth is not a curriculum. Truth is not a set of lesson plans. Truth is a person. Truth took on flesh. Truth said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And when we say, well, I'm not worth much, Truth stands and speaks. Randy, it was not with perishable things that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish. When I say, well, I'm not worth much, or I can't do anything of value, truth stands and truth speaks, you have this treasure of clay. To show that the all-surpassing power belongs to God and not you. When we say, well, I'm unlovable, truth stands and speaks. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I've drawn you with unfailing kindness. When we say, well, I'm incompetent, truth stands and speaks. I will put my spirit in you and cause you to follow my decrees. When we say, I can never be forgiven, Truth stands and speaks. Oh, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's truth. See, see, Christianity is not this magisterial rule book designed to tell you why you're a monster. But rather, a merciful companion of truth in the storms of life. And we long for that. We long for that kind of truth. Truth that transforms. Truth that changes us. And truth that affects how we treat others. That's why it's so important for you to determine where you're going to get your truth. Tim Keller. I think he's a great pastor and preacher and he talks about this particular issue asking a very interesting, almost funny question. He asks, why will there never be Amish terrorists? Well, if your fundamental truth is a man dying on the cross for his enemies, if the very heart of your self-image and your religion is a man praying for his enemies as he died for them, sacrificing for them, loving them, if that sinks into your heart of hearts, it's going to produce the kind of life that the early Christians produced. The most, the most inclusive possible life out of the most exclusive 
possible claim. And that is that this, Jesus, is the truth. And what is the truth? The truth is that God became weak, loving, and dying for the people who opposed him, dying to forgive them. Don't you see? In a stormy, opinionated world, God's words shine truth. In a truth-from-down-under world, we can trust truth from on high. Since you have been raised with Christ, set your minds above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And because Christ's truth lives in his people, Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and now the sending of his spirit upon his people. This congregation can serve as a, a lighthouse embassy, a community of truth, a refuge for people to come and learn truth, loving truth, wonderful truth, merciful truth, here is who God says you are. Now trust him. And it's lighthouse truth, not just for your mind, not just for your intellect, but for your heart, for your soul. A truth that reminds you of who you are in Christ. Such truth that will make you unshakable in the storms of life. Now I close with a story about a pastor who, well, in the world's perspective, this would be cataclysmic news. But his mind is set on things above. His name is Justin Welby. Justin Welby is uh, the, um, the Archbishop of Canterbury who is the leader of the Church of England and the worldwide Anglican Communion. And uh, Justin Welby's uh, upbringing was just messy, just messy. His mother, um, Jane Williams, and his father, Gavin Welby, uh, they were both alcoholics. Uh, Gavin Welby was a first-generation Jewish immigrant to the UK. He was a, uh, he was a whiskey salesman. Uh, uh, he was called an alcoholic trickster. Um, tried to run for parliament twice. Um, his parents divorced when he was just two. Um, his mother has been in recovery since 1968. She hasn't touched alcohol in nearly 50 years. Uh, his father, Gavin Welby, died as a result of alcohol and smoking in 1977 when Justin Welby was 21. And... So he kind of weathered through all of that stuff and uh, got married. Um, his first daughter was a baby when she was killed in a car accident. Um, got through that. Limped through that. Um, he became an executive in the oil industry, uh, earning quite a bit of money when he was called to ministry. And so he became a pastor in the Anglican church. And 
And now he's the Archbishop of Canterbury. Quite a story. Recently, and I mean like just in the past couple of weeks, Archbishop Welby discovered through DNA testing that his biological father was not Gavin Welby at all, but rather the late Sir Anthony Montague Brown. Sir Anthony Montague Brown was Winston Churchill's executive assistant. Just before his mother married Gavin, she had a dalliance with Anthony, and that's how Justin was conceived. And in a pretty buttoned-up culture like that, I mean, this was scandalous news. But Justin Welby's response has been just nothing short of remarkable. Poise and grace. This is what he said. I know that I find who I am in Jesus Christ, not in genetics. And my identity in him never changes. He says, at the very outset of my inauguration service three years ago, a young member of the Canterbury Cathedral Congregation, so as a part of the liturgy of him being installed, um, he has his shepherd's staff and he knocks on the door of this great cathedral. And the door opens and a young member says ceremonially, we greet you in the name of Christ. Who are you and why do you request entry? To which I responded, I am Justin, a servant of Jesus Christ. And I come as one seeking the grace of God to travel with you in his service together. What has changed as a result of this news? Archbishop Welby says, nothing. Nothing. You see, the boy who cared for his drunken first father in lonely and painful circumstances, and the boy who has now found out that he has a different father, that boy is now a man of God who long ago placed his confidence in a divine father who does not change. And that church family is truth from on high. Amen.